I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, welcome back to You Tell Me The Score. This is the second part of the David Arnold interview in which we talk about Don Black, John Barry, writing Bond scores, working on the Olympics... All kinds of stuff. Uh, ironically, there was a, a short section entirely devoted to non-disclosure agreements, which are things that you very often have to sign if you work in film these days. Um, but we realised that um, we were sailing a bit too close to the wind, so we had to cut a little bit of that. Um, nevertheless, it's a, it's a really lovely and fascinating, frank and honest interview with David. Enjoy. Someone, actually, I wanted to touch on a collaboration that you've that's been quite long-standing for you is with Don Black and who has had such longevity in mm. his writing. Do you, how do you think he's managed that? I mean, obviously, he's really, really good at his job and he's a lovely, yes. very funny, charming guy. Yes, extremely clever. Uh, and I think Don has one of those sort of unique uh, qualities, which he has a way of coming up with a phrase which does two things. One is it clings so beautifully to the melody that he's been given. So he can, you know, I hate to use the word sculpt, but it's appropriate, it works. He can shape a word to a melody. You know, he can find the right word that says the right thing. He's also very aware about how it sounds when it's sung. Mm. You know, when Don sends me a lyric, you think like, oh, that's quite nice. But then when you sing it, it's like, oh, all of a sudden it comes to life. I suppose yeah. it's like when you taste something, you know, it's like you think, oh, that looks lovely. And then you taste it and everyone looks at each other and go like, what is that? You know, yeah. it's like, it's a different world. And when you're a singer uh, and you're able to sing these things, it's the shape of the word and the way that where the note is at a certain point, then there is a word which has a shape, which means your mouth can be in a certain way, which means that you can sing it much better than you can if it was an awkward, you know, vowel sound um so he does all that that's a sort of technical thing which i think is instinctive with him i don't think it's a studied thing i just think he knows um does he sing no like, to himself no or? he doesn't sing no um and i've seen him do at that at the sods yeah we're yeah, allowed to talk about sods or is it is it like the masons yeah it's not really no it's just a bunch of songwriters who right. get together uh i mean yeah. we've lost quite a lot of them over the last couple of years right. um but it was started in in the early seventies. It's just a bunch of songwriters because songwriters are basically anonymous people. Yes, uh, and they wanted to get together and hang out with each other for a bit, um, and that's all it was. Um, but he's comparing on that. Well, he was a stand-up. He comedian. does it so brilliantly. Yeah, he was a stand-up before he was um, before he was a lyricist, and he was an artist manager. He he he, wow. uh, he managed Matt Monroe uh, for quite a while. Oh. Um, well, certainly through the bulk of his success. Um, but no, he's incredibly funny um, uh, and and incredibly witty. But I think I think his ace in the hole is that Don has a way of arriving at what seems like the simplest of phrases, 
and you think for some reason you think like I've heard that before and then when you think of it you never have it's like there's something about the vernacular uh, the, 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 the the commonality of the phrase which you know I don't know like born free as free as the wind blows as free as the grass grows you know that seems like something that you would say mm -hmm. but no one ever did before he wrote born free and now you say it and it's like well that seems like folk music that seems like the sort of thing that people would say yeah. not a poet would say not an artist would say in a way people it's something that people would say and i think all of his uh lyrics have this kind of root in a sort of human commonality that people can understand it you don't have to be schooled or educated or anything you just need to be alive and have lived to understand a don lyric and you know th there is a huge amount of profound work hidden in that very simple phraseology um uh you know like, like to sir with love they just trip off the tongue those things born free i mean in the bond ones obviously you know some of them were funny diamonds are forever you know because you you're thinking of certain specific things he always said to me that bond songs should have a, a a whiff of the boudoir about them right but when i pushed him to write something not like that for me i thought it was better you know, one of my favourite songs that we've written together was on For the World Is Not Enough that Scott Walker sang. It's called Only, Only Myself to Blame. Uh, and it's a very simple lyric. Um, I've walked way past midnight. I've uh, um, I've tried to forget in so many ways. Uh, it's like everywhere I look, uh, you know, I, I, can, I, I can see a face and it's my fault. You know, it's like I've only got myself to blame. Uh, simple idea from city to city I still see her face it follows me round all over the place I shouldn't look back but I do just in case you know it's like it's one of those yeah. things where it's like you're kind of haunted by something and in three four five words you you're sold the entire idea of it and that's where I think his sort of genius lies you know he has like John Barry used to have, like in two or three bars, he would tell you what was going on, whether it was the you know, or bam bam wow wow wow, you knew where you were, like immediately. All his tunes, you know, they were immediately there. And Don's, you know, Don's lyrics are the same. Like we did one for Surrender for Tomorrow Never Dies. Like the opening lines were like, "You'll." Your life is a story I've already written. You know, that's it. Okay, that's the film. You know, that's what it's about. Um, and it's an extraordinary gift, I think, to be able to be that simple and that profound and that uh, laser-sharp, uh, guided accuracy in terms of the sentimentality of it, you know, and the meaning of it. But like you say, also, when you, when you speak those lyrics... They don't sound ridiculous, and I think a lot of lyrics, were you to read them off the page, can just sound like bad poetry sometimes. They're like, I think why they land so readily is because they are almost conversational. You know, it's, it's, it, it's, elevating, it's elevating the way that we speak to each other just to the next level. With like, like a, it's like it's been varnished with a kind of poetry, but it's still what we say. 
Mm. Um, like a great photograph of a of a ordinary family doing something, you know, all of a sudden within that you see so many other things, um, although it appears quite simple at, at the time. But that's why humans are interesting, you know, because there's always so much more going on. Well, you just touched on the Bond franchise then, and I know you probably are sick of talking about it, but... I th- I'll never get sick of talking about it. Really? Well, can you imagine never having been able to do one? Yeah, I suppose it's you know, a much I mean, bigger it's, problem yeah, it's, it's, talking it's, about having yeah. done a lot. And I always think it's, like, it's really weird when people say, I don't want to talk about that. Go, but no, but this is the thing that everyone wants to know. Yes. It's like deliberately not, I don't want to do that single. You know, I don't want to do the big hit because I played it. I, mean, I can understand not wanting to, uh, but refusing to is a different thing, I think. But, I mean, how many gigs have you been to when you just want to hear them play those amazing songs yeah, and well, they I insist think... on playing their brand new yeah. album and nobody yeah. wants to hear? Yeah. But <laughs> I, I, I was just thinking that it's it's a peculiar... Uh, I suppose it's, a, it's, it's, an, it's an interesting gig, let's say, because you're taking on custodianship of something that mm. has existed before you and will probably you know, yeah. exist after your yeah. involvement in it. And yeah, you have some control, but not as much as you would normally have. You have responsibilities in a way mm. that you that wouldn't normally exist. Yeah. And did you do you enjoy that dance of 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 the, the conflicting needs? Even a director is is a. I mean, you'd have been there for for more yeah. films than any of the directors. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, you know, if we're going back to the climbing Everest analogy. Mm. If you've climbed it once and then someone asks you to climb it again but a different route, it's not going to be any easier. You know, I mean, sure. you've done it once, fine, but that doesn't mean that you can do it again. You know, you might have different weather conditions or uh, whatever it is, you know, physically you're in a different uh, place. So it's always a different experience and it's always as, it's never any easier or any simpler. Um, uh, but yes, yeah, so I worked with five uh, different directors on it. I always felt that. I was part of a relay team uh, and that someone passed a baton to me that I had to run around with. Um, and you weren't quite sure how many times round you were going <laughs> to be asked to go round, you know, but it's like, so we went round once again, you're going to have to go round again. So you go in knowing that at some point you're going to hand it to someone else, you know, you make sure you don't drop it yeah. and lose uh, or you don't ruin it. You know, you've just got to make sure that this thing stays aloft in your grip so you can pass it on to someone else who will then run the same circuit the way that they want to run it yeah. at the speed that they want to run it in the kit that they want to run it in um if we're going to further that analogy anyway, that's it that's enough of that I've, um, I've got so much further to go with that analogy that, that that sense of having having to answer i guess to to barbara broccoli and michael yeah. g wilson yet also having more experience than the director that they've also got. Well, what's great about it is that Michael and Barbara are... I mean, when you say, like, answer to Michael and Barbara, that's all you have to think about because yeah. they keep everyone else out of the uh, out of the, of the process. So it's them and the director and me, which is brilliant because that's all you want, any more than that, and it's... You know, I don't know why I'm getting notes from someone I've never met saying that the oboe's too loud in that section. You know, I've got no idea what, yeah. what that what that is all about. Um, but Barbara and Michael, I think, are extremely smart in that they, I think, they hire people that they think are right for the job at that point in time for that film, and they let them 
do what they think is right for the film. When I say they, I mean the director, the writers, composers. Um, but they have, analogy-wise, you know when you used to go bowling, uh, a ten-pin bowling, and if you had little kids with you, they'd put little bumpers up at the side so that so it would never go in the gutter. They're like that, you know. Yes. It's like we want you to get a strike. We don't want you to go in the gutter. We're the safety bumpers. We're just going to make sure that you know if you're veering towards what we think might be the gutter, yeah. uh, we'll make sure that we'll catch you. And you know, so this is where we want to end up. But at any point in those ten pins at the end, you can hit them at any point and get them all down. You know, we're not saying we want you to hit that one at that point. Um, is that an analogy that works? Kind of. Um, because you then say, okay, those are the conditions under which we do this. You know, it's like, that's where we want to be. We want to get as high a strike as possible. Anyway, I want it as long as I don't go, you know, straight off path and then I won't get anything. Uh, so the directors have that same sort of guidance as well. And within those confines, which are broad, but at the same time, quite specific. And I think you kind of need to understand bomb music the, the the kind of the, the the sense of it somehow uh you can you can do what you think is right I, I, it's funny you mentioned about that the sort of the care caretaking yeah role that everyone i know who's who's been involved with a with a bomb movie in front of the camera all said that they they feel like they've been really well taken care of mm. and that it like this insane Traveling circus is a really, really caring environment in which to work. Yeah, it's like it's like going round to someone's house and having dinner with them in their lovely, cosy dining room, and then pulling back the curtains and you see that the garden is like massive, right. you know, with with unicorns and ice <laughs> palaces, and you know, yeah. it's a, oh, I didn't realize there was all that as well because you you basically are. I mean, you are looked after. In every in every way, but I think their greatest uh, their greatest asset is, um, I think, choosing people you know to do the right job for them, yeah. uh, and protecting them. And you never felt you're ne you never felt like you're anything other than right at the centre of it. Yeah. Uh, and they are very protective of you and what you're doing, and supportive of what you're doing obviously providing you're doing the right thing uh, or certainly the thing that everyone hopefully is thinking is, yeah. is working. Um, uh, and even after the event, I'm saying aftercare, like it's a thing that they have to do. I just think instinctively, you know, Barbara, Michael want, uh, want to take care of people. You know, they, there's a huge amount of respect and love for their crew and for their cast and for everyone that works on it and they're very aware that it's a group effort you know and a team sport and they are like the greatest managers you know because a you you feel re respected and listened to and supported uh and as a result you do anything for them you know and i still work with them and i haven't done a film with them for a while but um I've done other things for them that are bond related which has involved writing sort of bond music for various things uh whether it's charitable things or, or uh, campaigns or i'm just about to do another one um a little one for for no time to die for a unrelated to do thing we do with that with aston martin not to do with the actual film 
um, but it's part of the you know promotional run up yeah. sort of thing for it. Um, and you know the fact that they would ask me to still do things like that is I think a huge compliment. And the fact that I would never say no yeah. tells you all you need to to know about that relationship. Really, you know, I feel like I owe them uh, an awful lot, but more than anything. I, I I value their friendship more than anything else, which is why it wouldn't it wouldn't worry me. Uh, what would worry me is 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 jeopardising or losing my relationship with those people. Uh, I wouldn't care. Wouldn't say care. It wouldn't worry me if I if I didn't do another Bond movie again. I remember, and as a session musician, you very I rarely... want to, and I would. <laughs> I would. Let's that. Let's that <laughs> I definitely would. Uh, but if I didn't. That's fine as well. I mean, I've had, I've done five. That's plenty for a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, uh, I, I was I was just remembering the a couple of days. I think I would have done Casino Royale for you and Quantum, Quantum Solace, Yeah. And the last day, and it's still even the other even Tom's ones that I've worked on. It's always the last day that you do Bana Wana, and that that day at air when we were working for you, this all the staff. Came in and sat in the gallery to yeah. listen to that bit, and it happened yeah. both times. And that's that feeling. It's very unusual as a session musician. It's yeah. often a tense place to be. Yeah. You're the last thing to go on. The money's run out. Everyone's yeah. worried about everything. Yeah. And it just felt like a sort of very comfortable culmination. Yeah. And a meaningful event actually. Yeah. Saying, yeah. you know, this is yours, but in a way that yeah. they actually meant it. Yeah. Well, it's interesting with that with that particular version of Casino Royale, which was the first one I think we're talking about. Um, We'd had that that experience of writing the film score, only hinting at the Bond theme throughout. You know, like dropping little elements of it as he earned it through yes. the film. Uh, the thinking being that if he hasn't become James Bond yet in that film, if he's making mistakes and he's losing his game of cars, if he you know he's wrecked his car, he gets kidnapped, he gets drugged. All these things, mistakes that perhaps James Bond shouldn't make, he's making, and we're seeing him basically acquiring the things that create the James Bond that we know. Um, we can't play the James Bond theme because then, what's he doing making mistakes? You know, yeah. we can't have that because we are then ahead of the character, and you can never be ahead of James Bond in a James Bond movie as an audience. Is that something that came from you that you'd spotted, or, or was that was that made clear to you? Um, in the script, right at the end, it just says, we hear the James Bond theme. Right. Now, there was no suggestion. There, were only, there weren't any other sort of music suggestions in, 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 in the script, but that was it. Because he said the last line of the words is, the name's Bond, James Bond. That's the last line in the movie. Right. So in a way, of course, it's going to have to be that. But the decision to withhold that Seemed very, it seemed obvious to me as I was writing it because every time I think, well, maybe I should do it here, you think, well, that's not right because in the next scene he's done something which James Bond wouldn't do, mm. you know. Uh, and so you can't be, you know, the guy and then not be the guy. Otherwise, as an audience, it's confusing. But 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 be it, so it it it, it jeopardises his credibility and the film's credibility. So you have to follow the journey of him through that film. Uh, and in the recording session, I always kept the Bond theme till last anyway, because there is a kind of explosion of relief in the performance when you've done six days of recording James Bond film music without playing that theme yeah. full out. 
where you hint at it and you get the flavour of it. And I would, I mean, I don't know because I wasn't in the orchestra and in a way I wish I was, but taking me back to that thing when I was seven years old and watching the films for the first time, being a part of the thing that made that noise, yeah. you know, playing that thing. And I did a deliberately kind of slightly retro but contemporary version of it. Um, that take was like absolutely electrifying. I remember at the time that everyone was there and everyone came in because we'd been waiting for it the whole week, been waiting to play it, everyone had been waiting to hear it. And this film was a, you know, is a is a is a monster in a way. There's a lot of music in it, uh, and it was all very different. And it was Daniel's first one, so there was the whole public, you know, perception of him not being right for it. And there's us yes. looking at this film and thinking like, well, he's amazing. Uh, and so we've been waiting for this moment where we can hear this music and realise that he is James Bond. Yeah. Um, and the the vibe of the playing at that i remember the take very distinctly we did we did it twice i think uh and it was the first one apart from the first 13 bars i think we did again um but once that was off once that had been once we got there it was like there was no stopping and everyone was like on top of their game and that thing just flew out uh and it was so exciting and I was sitting there going, ding, 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 you know, like <laughs> in the control room, wishing I was out in the room with everyone. But just the vibe, it was so exciting. And everyone yeah. played it so brilliantly. And that became the kind of Daniel Craig Bond theme reading. They used it in Skyfall. I think they used a bit of Inspector. I've got no idea if there's any of it in, in, in No Time to Die. Um, but that sort of version of it became Daniel's James Bond theme, you know. Uh, and I suppose... It was 2006 when we did that, right. so there's quite a lot of time has gone by since I'm, then. I'm not sure if I'm allowed to talk about No Time to Die. One nice point I wanted to make about Michael G. Wilson, actually, that when we signed so many massive, several-page-long non-disclosure agreements when we do movies, and the first time I remember Michael G. Wilson, he just... We hadn't signed one. It was one of yours. I, can't, I, can't, mm. I forget which one it was, but he, got, he came up to the podium... We were just about to record the the final song, and he said, "Look, guys, it'd just be, be really great if you could just keep this under your hat for a bit, um, just because we want it to be a surprise when it when it hits the screen." Mm. And of course, everyone just plays ball yeah, because of they're being respected. Yeah, and, and that that felt like a real window into that yeah. into the way they run things. Yeah, I loved, I loved that. Yeah, it was. And and you think about the amount of films that have gone through that building. Yeah where people have said, well, we can't call it whatever the film is, we've got to give it a code name, yeah, yeah. and you're not allowed to say anything but the code name. And you think, like, hold on, you know, we just did we just did the last Bond movie in here, you know, we just did, like, the Narnia films, we just did Frozen, you know, it's like, yeah. we've done all these Im enormous films, and the people that work on them yeah. work on these things day in, day out. Yeah. It's a bit like saying to the head of 20th Century Fox, don't call it Star Wars. We're going to call it the Red Room. You know, he's going, hold on, I own 20th Century. No, you're not allowed to call it that. Uh, it's a bit weird. Oh, isn't God, it? I mean, I've sat down so many times and thought, oh, Florence's Letter, that's a funny name. 
for a film. I wonder what that's about. You know, and then a week later you realise that it's Inception. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and actually I can't remember what they called. Yeah. It was was it the Red Room they called Han Solo? Something. It was something like, like yeah, that. Something and we sat like down. That, yeah. I thought that's funny. And then yeah. And then we started recognising themes and well, thinking, hang on. Well, what's really weird about it is that a everyone knows anyway. Yeah. You know, and it's like you walk into the room and you see like on the board like what's in this week. And you see, like, you know, there might be six days for a film, like, with big numbers in it. You go, okay, this is going to be a big movie. And it would be called something like, you know, Black Jelly, you know. And and then your first thing you say, like, what's that? And then someone say, oh, it's Star Wars or something, you know. Okay. And no one, you know, no one cares, really. You know, it's like, it's an important thing. We've all done important things. They've all worked on important things. That's all they do. They work on big, important things, and no information is leaked. I understand why they would want to in case people turn up to the studio and they try and get in or they try and get photographs. But, you know, generally recording sessions aren't advertised publicly. People don't know that they're happening unless you are involved in them. And the people that are involved in them are very respectful of the work that they're doing and and the privacy that's involved with it. So, yeah, yeah, the NDA thing is is a bit odd. I'd love just to talk about the difference between scoring for TV and for film. And I thought maybe Good Omens would be a good way into that yeah just at what stage you were were asked to do it did you read a script were you given a storyboard what how, um, how did it start because there's so much music in it yeah uh well i, I realized that the, actually the tv work that i've done has all been so very idiosyncratic and really nothing like other things and that's i think from sort of little britain sherlock uh good omens um quite odd things you know quite odd shows in a lot of ways um that demanded idiosyncratic music rather than hotcoat um and um good omens was something that when you read it and you realize how much is in it how many characters in it the stories are various and varied and they go from the creation of the earth through you know christ through the roman empire through French Revolution, World War Two, now and the future, and space and heaven and hell, um, that you literally can do anything. And I think the first conversation I had with Neil Gaiman and Doug McKinnon, who was directing them all, uh, was um, I had an idea. I said it might be, I don't know if it, it might be a bit mad, but let me know what you think. And I think they liked that. Basically their thing was like, make it madder. You know, it's like if you think of anything, just be as extreme and out there and unusual and weird. And the weird thing was that every time I did it, it worked. It was one of those shows that is so it shouldered so much in a way, creative variation without it putting a foot wrong. You know, it seemed to be able to support all these different things uh, incredibly easily. Um, and so it was a gift in that regard. Um, but there were a lot stylistically loads of different things, but I always start with a theme when it's something that I feel is musical rather than textural, I will try and write a theme. So the theme was the first thing that came to me, uh, and everything kind of came from that. There were lots of other themes that happened as well, but the central big one, like the, 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 the title piece, which kind of is a thing that supports the score all the way through, um, is I think, you know, hopefully identifiable as good omens. Um, And it's one of those things when you write something like that, you hope that when you play it to the creators that they can 
see the show in the music that they're hearing yeah. you know that they don't think this doesn't feel like it or i'm not sure if they can see the show you know blossoming in their brains when they hear the music then you know that's what you hope for and that's luckily what happened mm -hmm. you know but there is this awful awful moment where you've excused everything that you can excuse when you're about to play someone a piece of music you know it's only a demo these are only samples you know it's going to be better yes. when it's played by real people and it's like i'm not sure about this bit and, and they're all sort of thinking shut up and play it imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt now imagine them getting even softer over time that's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. But there's that horrible, that horrible bald silence that happens when the last note is there and no one said anything. Yeah. Um, that I, I I liken to the sound of televised golf after someone hits the initial big yeah. hit and it's up in the air and the camera's looking at sky and you're hearing a kind of BBC compressed nothing. And you're looking at nothing. And there's a ball somewhere, but you can't see it because it's white and the sky's in its cloud. And so you can't really see anything until it goes back down on the green again. And even then you can barely see it. So it's like you've been in a kind of void yes. for six seconds, you know, because no one's saying anything. The crowd aren't applauding. Might hear a seagull. But apart from that, there's this weird compressed silence. Mm that silence is the silence that you get between the last note fading out and someone saying, yeah, that's all right. Or I'm not sure about that. Mm. I always try and get directors. I said, look, even if you hate it, make the first thing you say, you really like it and you can dissect it and break it down as much as you want after that. Yeah. But you kind of need to hear that someone likes it. Otherwise it's really crushing well, I remember when like a performer if you're an actor you know it's yeah. like the first thing you know, you know if someone did a did, you know you did your first take and the director the first thing you say like, well that wasn't very good i mean it'd be crushing wouldn't it you say oh, that's great i wonder if we can try course, blah, blah, yeah. blah, blah, blah. i mean that extends even to you know I, your handwriting's so lovely but you know what do we do at the beginning of a sentence yeah. to a five-year-old you know yeah. i think everyone needs a bit yeah. of yeah i love what you've done but you know, yeah. have you thought? Can you that? do it completely differently? <laughs> do it all differently. Again, by it's tomorrow. true. It is true, and yeah. it does. It it does work. Uh, um, yeah, we all need we all need uh, encouragement. But actually, having having heard, well, I don't know if you'd call them demos, but heard your mock up of the whole thing. It was yeah. more than a demo. That when you played me the first episode of it, before we recorded it. Yeah. I mean, I, I just thought that you don't really need to. 
do anything, do yeah. you? I mean, it's, yeah. it's all there, isn't it? Maybe there was a horrendous long pause after I played it to me. <laughs> I'm just trying to remember. Well, it's one of those things that, that it's only when you then hear it done with real players that you go, oh, no, it actually is better. I mean, yeah. I mean, now with obviously, you know, there are great libraries available, great samples available. There, There's plenty of things that you can make it sound really good. Yeah. But what you won't have is um, the subtleties and the, the inflections of a, of, a, of a proper performance. You know, it's like, yeah. I mean, we didn't have that many players on it, but even if you have like 14 or 15 people playing, that's 14 lifetimes of musical experience yeah. being brought to bear upon this music. And every note bears a, 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 a kind of commonality with everything that they've ever played before and everything that they've ever performed um, and all of a sudden comes to life. It's like I can write down the words, uh, are you talking to me? Yeah. And when I say it, you understand that that's, yeah, that's the sense of it. Are you talking to me? Yeah. You give it to a great artist, you give it to Robert De Niro and all of a sudden 2D to 3D. Yeah, yeah. And that's what really happens. You know, I always sort of liken it to like, if it's the difference between looking at a digital photograph of the Mona Lisa and the Mona Lisa. Yeah. You know, it's like when you look at a digital photograph of the Mona Lisa, which is replicated color, tone, everything, yeah. you can, you know what it is and you think yeah. oh, that's amazing. But when you're standing in front of the physical original, then that's a very different experience. There's loads of tourists in the way. <laughs> yeah. Loads of people with cameras. <laughs> maybe that's what maybe that's what it. I should do. Like you know, like if I play someone a demo, I'm just going to get 300 people to stand in front of the screen with Shout. cameras. Yeah, yeah. Like, that's brilliant. <laughs> but uh, you know, also on a very technical level, playing as with a small group in in the hall where we did yeah. Gnome, and I think it does do something great to a small group. Yeah, it's wonderful. It, 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 it's it's kind of clear but bigger yeah. at the same yeah. time. It's, it's very it, complimentary and and fills it with like like firelight you know it fills it with with physical imperfection which is which is what our ears delight in yeah you know absolutely did, were you getting drafts of scripts for that or did you no they'd written i think they'd written it before they started shooting right uh there was a couple of things that i had to do before they were shooting uh because the first thing was a version of Lazing on a Sunday Afternoon, a Queen song that they wanted for a brass, a brass band, which was actually in episode six, but I think it was one of the first things that they right. shot. Uh, so that was the first thing I actually recorded uh, uh, because they had to do it on screen. They had to be seen to be playing it. And then the second thing I had to write was the little lullaby that, if anyone doesn't know the story, but David Tennant is playing Crowley, who's a, a demon whose job it is to make sure that the... Um, that the Antichrist reaches uh, his age upon which he can start the apocalypse and bring about the last great battle between uh, heaven and hell on earth, but they lose the Antichrist. Yes. Uh, and he has to pretend to be his nanny uh, at the house where he's growing up yeah. now, the Antichrist. And Michael Sheen's character, an angel called Aziraphale, is then employed as the gardener in this house mm -hmm to make sure that the child grows up good. And David Tennant's Crowley's trying to make him grow evil. And he's putting him to bed one night and he sings him a lullaby. And Neil Gaiman had phoned me up and said, uh, we need a song for David to be able to sing a lullaby. Uh, and here are, here are the words, you know, like go, go to sleep and dream of pain. Uh, you know, the world will be yours, you know, be full of blood and brains and stuff like this. Uh, really macabre and brilliant. Uh, and I'd thought about it a bit. I said like, I think this. I think we should do this, uh, like if um, 
if Walt Disney was possessed by Satan. That's what it should be like. Um, like those Mary Poppins go to sleep kind of songs, yeah. you know, like Hushabye Mountain kind yeah. of thing. Um, but but evil. There's uh, something so sinister about a lullaby sometimes. Yeah, it? yeah. It's it just... is when you're talking about having people's blame, yeah. brains blown out. Um, uh, yeah, once the, yeah, it's like once this is the world will be yours when all this has happened, you know. Um, and uh, so that was kind of done really quickly, uh, and I I recorded it roughly and sent it to them so they had something to record to and David could sing to it. Um, and it was one of those instinctive things that I didn't really think about too much, but the more I thought about it, the more I kept coming back to it, like in the. In the, in the weeks after because it would be months before I actually had a cut of anything to start working to um, I just thought this, is, this feels like too strong a musical idea for it to be just that moment mm. um, and I started thinking about well maybe I can extend it and it became like the bridge section the, the central cent the centre part of the main theme in the end but it only existed because Neil asked me to do that one thing once very early on that I didn't even think about it so I didn't think I was writing a theme for the show I just thought I was writing a thing for this tiny little moment what an, I mean a kind of happy workflow coincidence you know? um, yeah it's a bit it's a bit like having the ears to spot when something's working you know I remember seeing a documentary about um, George Martin producing Paul McCartney on a solo thing uh, and Paul was in the studio playing bass he had a Rickenbacker bass and George was just recording and Paul was like, I would say, jamming or messing about, you know, that's like finding little ideas. And a certain amount of time had passed and they pressed stop and George just said, roll back to like one hour and 13 minutes or something. And so they rolled to this point. It was this little thing that he was playing, boom, 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 because there's something in there. That little thing yeah. in a sea of improvisations, just that little thing. And Paul's like starting playing with him, but he sits down at a piano, like, I can wait another day. Da, 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 da. Starts turning into a song. It's like, there's the song all of a sudden, yeah. you know, because someone heard it. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's good to, it's like being happy. It's good to know when it's happening. Uh, just before we wrap up, and it occurred to me actually, that I've, I've listened to you through headphones quite a lot, you know, from a control room. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, I say not, hopefully not in your personal private. <laughs> no, I spend every waking hour. No, listening to you talk to orchestras. And I'm always struck by how, how calm you appear to be, and I wondered if that is, are the legs under the water moving very, very fast, or is, it just, um, is there just no point in being stressed? Well, I, I, I think that I worry about things a lot mm. but i try not to be worried by them mm -hmm. if that makes sense of course yeah, yeah. <laughs> um so if it's going well then obviously it's much easier to be relaxed mm. i feel incredibly tense before each start of each cue because i'm not sure how it's going to play you know it's like until you've heard it you don't know whether or not you've slightly over-egged it or, you know, it needs to be reduced a little bit or things need to come out or change. And also, you've got studio people and directors and editors there who might be sitting in a corner, all of a sudden yeah. their ears prick up and they have a little whisper to each other and you're going, OK, here it goes. You know, it's like something's going to... Now, here's another week's work about to yeah. pop up in a week that we don't have. Um, so that's always... I always find it quite traumatic. If you have a good first morning, 
yes everything seems to calm down i think you know it's like you have to pick the first couple of cues that a you think will play well and will feel good and the band gets an idea of what it is that we're doing yeah. and then people in the control room can relax because oh yeah this is right you know yeah. this is going well i mean now it's slightly less more like that because you have to demo all that stuff beforehand yes. so it's much rarer now that you would play something that no one's ever heard before in yeah. fact it's almost unheard of that that would happen i yeah. mean even in tv we have to demo everything you know even like a two second sting or something like everything gets demoed so there is no um uh there's no surprises you know people don't like surprises anymore yeah um uh, and certainly you know going back to the old days i remember seeing a documentary um uh about f uh, film music composers uh and they were talking uh, to alfred hitchcock uh and he was saying how much he hates uh, film composers he said well because when you're there in the room you know they're sitting at the piano and they get that like, well this is going to be flutes and this is going to be horns and this is going to be strings and you have to sort of believe them and he goes and the next thing you know weeks later you've got an orchestra in a room and they're all playing it and you go no 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 that's not right and then everyone turns around and goes well it's too late now you know we can't do uh that doesn't happen anymore yeah. and even when i did stargate the first time you know i did a big film uh the producers and directors had only heard about five or six cues really because wow. we, you you didn't demo things really then you know they, and they, they how did like, you how did you make that work do you just have to book a lot more studio time to save you if it goes uh wrong? no we just had to i mean luckily there wasn't that much that we ended up changing uh or tweaking um uh but those things you just end up staying up all night you know it's, yeah. it's those it's those are the times which you, you know largely avoid now because you demo ahead of the time so yeah. the good thing about that is that the recording session is all about making the performance right and not getting the piece right you know the, so the, just, the piece has been approved yeah. you just want to try and make it as good so a performance you're not as too possible worried about whether the director hates it because you know that he would have, you know he won't suddenly look at it in a new light and go like well i didn't think it would be like this because demos have to be pretty close to how it's going to be it just needs to feel more electric which it always does when course. we were sitting at the albert hall for circle of sound which i when you'd said you'd written it and i was like well you know obviously i want to go and hear it but i didn't quite realize the scale of it okay and, and monumental i haven't spoke to you about that well i know it's amazing yeah but i it did occur to me then that at no point during that concert can you press the red you know press the talk back and say actually hang on you know, once that ship has left the harbour, yeah. there's no bringing it no, back. No. And do you, can you relax into that sense that it's out of your control? Uh, you can, uh, but your relaxation is very, you know, once the playback started going wrong, I wasn't, you know, yeah. there was a lot of running around. Right. Um, I, I actually didn't notice that. That's what the only thing I was saying to myself was like, people don't know this music, so they don't know that this is wrong. Right. Uh, but the people that did knew that it was. Yeah. Uh, but it was only wrong for the people in the room. I mean, I can rescue it for the recording thing. Right. Uh, it was it was so weird. We'd had like a day of tech rehearsal where everything was perfect. We'd had a dress rehearsal where everything was perfect. On the show itself, there were two pieces where I had some pre-recorded stuff where for some reason it glitched and the playback, which also had clicks for the orchestra, basically hopped forward like a half a beat. Right. Uh, and so everyone was kind of out of sync right. for a beat and a half. And um, short of me running up the Albert Hall to the sound desk at the end and telling them to 
pull things back a little bit. You just had to let it play out. Um, and it was lu lucky that it wasn't horribly noticeable. Mm -hmm. There was one moment where there was like a half a second gap. But when you listen, when I listen back to it now, disassociating myself from where it should be, it actually didn't sound too no. bad. It was fine. It still made sense, but it wasn't quite right, you know. But these things do happen. Uh, and there's really nothing you can do about it. I mean, they had to then boot up the backup system for playback wow. for the rest of the show but there were two pieces that that sort of suffered a little bit but having having that many moving parts having like an orchestra uh, choirs with children vt actors yeah. coming on and off i mean if, if you're if you're of a, of a nervous disposition that is yeah that's gonna be i'm quite calm in those circumstances because i know what i want it to be and so it's easy to tell brilliantly talented people yeah what you would like to happen yeah. because being brilliantly talented they tend to make it happen yeah. and we had an incredible support team from the albert hall stage managing the whole yeah. thing so they they gifted me that evening uh and they gave me like a completely blank slate yeah. um that has a certain amount of responsibility which you have to think about yourself because they weren't saying it. Yeah. I knew it was 150 years and I knew we had to, you know, be respectful of, yeah. of the process uh, and of the occasion. Um, so I knew I couldn't be quite as, you know, sometimes a little bit out there as I could, but I thought maybe you can in other ways, you know, so hence the ping pong ball solo. Yeah, great. You know, <laughs> table <laughs> tennis solo. Um, and you had Nick. Dodd's conducting it, and I having worked yes. with Nick a lot. I, I, I've seen Nick work really, really hard before. I don't think I've ever seen him work that hard. I mean, he is always the, the joy with working for him is that you know the, the the crime I find most often committed in in studios is that there isn't enough energy in the room, mm. and 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 I just think your responsibility to it, if you're either sitting at the front or you're or you're conducting. Is to is to is to maintain the energy in the room, and that is something you never ever have to worry about with Nick because he's yeah. so committed. Yeah. But my God, I'd never seen him work as hard as that. That was yeah. a monumental. Yes. It was a huge. It was a huge thing. I think he had the time of his life. Well, I know he had yes, the time of his life. I, I think. So I think too, it was yeah. one of those things yeah, where yeah. it was again. It was like the perfect storm of a lot of things. But for Nick to be in front of that orchestra yeah. and a big choir at the Albert Hall. That thing which is all about music and all about the joy of the place and all about um uh you know the performance um it was absolutely play to his strengths one of the reasons why i can relax a lot is because i know nick's doing yes. that you know uh, and i'm not going to have to worry about that aspect of it so i can think about all the other bits and pieces we've worried about that stuff beforehand yeah. you know when i've written stuff and I've sent it off to him, and then like looking at scores when they come back, it's like we've done all that already. Yeah. Um, and so now it's just a matter of I know Nick will do the the performance aspect the way that we've talked about it already, yeah. uh, and I don't really have to do that much. Um, yeah. You know, we've we've had the rehearsal and we've had the dress rehearsal, so you know we've, we're able to talk about notes and things and talk to different players um, about way things the way things we want. And so I knew by the time we got to showtime, it was just a matter of making it electric you know and, and it was it was um, a very emotional evening actually. it was odd wasn't on, it on, it on, sort of became its own thing in a way yes yeah it was you know i don't think that many people have been in a room together for a very long time that's part of the perfect storm of it working yes. i think you know there was a huge hunger for it like waiting for the bond theme at the end of casino yeah. Royale. you were waiting for something special to happen so 
in a way, you rewarded what was in front of you yeah. with the gift of this is special. Whether it was or not, I don't know, but it felt like it. Yeah. Um, and I was happy with it. Um, musically, I think I did things that I wouldn't ever have really done. Um, and again, touching on that idea of celebration and joy, I think there were two moments in that where I felt elation in it, which I don't think I've ever really managed before because it's about something real uh, and because it you felt like you were part of something you know you know historic is a big word but for the hall it is you know and so therefore for us to be in that hall at that moment stating the historical importance of it and everything that's happened in it before during the concert and then in the future to be able to consider all of these things uh, felt like a sort of philosophical uh, and uh, an emotional, uh, lyrical, um, cultural um, fireworks display of, of, you know, just wonderful realisation that things can be great and people can be great and, you know, give them the tools to create something and you've got a wealth of experience of people that want to create that thing. And there's that amazing thing that happens when an audience and a group of performers connect and one feeds the other. And I knew once we got to, I think, the second the second piece, the first piece was vaguely classical in a way. You know, I think, I think it had elements of sort of Vaughan Williams and Sibelius and... and uh, uh, Walton, you know, it had various sort of colours of those things, the things that we expect from the alcohol. Yeah. Uh, and then this kind of welcoming thing that the choir sing. But then the second one was quite odd, the one about community. Halfway through that, you've got this amazing sort of black performance poet, uh, Lionheart, who's, who comes on to do a piece about uh, a black voice talking about um, architecture and the hall and its place in the world and our place in it and accessibility to yeah. it and what it means and what it does from starting with a kind of uh, a, 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 a Barkian organ piece that then goes into what feels like Gil Scott Heron yeah. that then ends up gospel but with the, the organ as part of that yes. that was when I knew it was working because this is unusual Whereas, like, I don't think you'd be that surprised by the first piece, but by the second piece, this is unusual. You know, this isn't what we were going to expect. And then it was like, we don't know what it's going to be. And so everything that came out was slightly different. Yeah. Um, I think it had that interconnectedness of a singular voice having done it and having done a take on it uh, and therefore presented a, a vision of it singularly. Um, and that's the big risk, I think, for them. You know, it's like, would I do that? But it worked all right. But the community involvement in it was also something that made it. Really yeah, we didn't pay lip service to that. No, you know, no, it's I'm, like we did proper work with yes. people beforehand, and had them performing as well. So you got the sense, you know, if you're going to be talking about the nation's village hall, you kind of want to put that to the test a little bit, you know. And and again, not put yourself ahead of this moment, you know, and and to and to let people perform and be a part of it. You know, there's a whole piece which was basically written with these uh, guys from a like community college. Yes. Um, 17, 18 year old kids in a band. 
Um, and I thought, well, I don't want anyone else to play this. You should come and play it. Yeah. So there they were at the Albert Hall, you know. It's wonderful. Finishing their, what is, I suppose, their last year in, you know, further education, like A-level, 18-year-olds um, as sort of performing students playing, I thought, brilliantly uh, at the Albert Hall on a piece that we'd worked on together, you know, yeah. big chunk of it. All the school kids doing all the choir stuff as well, and the National Youth Choir. Um, yeah, it was... Uh, tried hard to make that as diverse and inclusive as possible across the board um but yeah but also maintaining a sense of authorship over it otherwise it's chaos yes it ties really nicely into the last thing that i wanted to ask you having you know having talked about working with younger people if you could say anything to david in luton in 1970 or whenever it would have been what what, what advice would you would you give him now don't want to think about it too hard, otherwise it ends up being hallmark. Um, <laughs> I think maybe something that actually I did do, which I think helped a lot, which was something that my dad always used to be worried about, which was like, he, the only thing he, was ever, he ever asked me about was like, are they nice to you? Are you working with nice people? Um, are you enjoying it? Because the idea of success is, in one way, it's someone else's idea of success, isn't it? You know, you think like, well, I've got to be working at this level, at this sort of, with this sort of film, with these kinds of people, doing this sort of thing to be considered successful. I'm doing the, uh, you know, the the finger wagging thing here to speech parentheses thing, finger wag, success. and you realise that actually the, the the actual success is, and the only thing you have any control over is is what you do during the day, during your time. That's the only thing you have control over. Uh, and having had sort of varying uh, experiences with different sorts of people, um, I think finding people that you like who are nice to you and you are nice to them back, equally try and be as nice as I can be to to, to, to everyone else I'm working with, uh is, is is more important uh because that's the only thing you know i can do a film and i can have an experience on a film over like eight weeks or something and that film can either go down the pan and never be seen again or never get released or be released and be an enormous hit i don't really participate in that aspect of mm-hmm. its success you know it goes off and it does its own thing um i suppose it's a bit like having kids isn't it it's like when they've gone all you've got is the time that you spent together with them mm-hmm. in a way uh, and making the most of that is the most important thing so I try and do things that I like with people that I like and if it's something that I don't like but I do like the people I probably still do it mm-hmm. because I like the people and they yeah. probably ask me for the right reasons if it's something that I like and I don't like the people I probably wouldn't do it and I haven't done it because it's going to be a miserable experience, yeah. you know, and it's going to taint the part that I do like, which is the which is which is the work bit. So um, I, I I I would say try and try and find people who are like-minded, who are going to be kind to you and equally pass that, uh, you know, the way that you behave and the way that you are with people. Be as considerate and as careful and as kind as you can with them because at the end of the day if you don't 
achieve what you think you should have achieved, but your life has been full of great moments that you've been aware of, then that is actually the success. If you having a, if you've had a miserable time but achieved some kind of commercial success, but you hate it, I don't know if that's a success worth having. I'm not saying that the two are mutually exclusive, and I can't say, I don't say you think you can have one without the other. But obviously, the ideal is working on things that you love with people that you love that then do well. <laughs> you know, that's the ideal. Um, but um, yeah, maybe that's it. Lovely. Look, what a nice way to end thank you so much for your time you've been so generous and uh, it's lovely to talk to you I have to force you to sit down with your ass to sit on my ass and talk yeah. about nonsense thank you so much that's just lovely well you can mix this down and send it to Mickey Most and then you can release it into the charts at number three we don't want to appear to be greedy no yeah. three, let it be at number fine. let it be at number three for a couple of weeks and then number one in a couple of weeks That was the lovely David Arnold. Thanks for listening, and do join me again soon for more Tell Me The Score. Take care. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.